welcome to the fourth episode of the 2023 BMJ Sexually Transmitted Infections podcast series. I am Fabiola Martin, the BMJ STI podcast editor and sexual health specialist based in Australia and lecturer at School of Public Health at University of Queensland here in Brisbane. The International AIDS Society Conference was held for the first time in Brisbane in July 2023. It was wonderful to learn about many new research findings, community perspectives and to connect with old friends and make many new ones. Today we'll provide you with some of the many highlights of this conference and share our perspectives. I therefore welcome Dr. Ming Li, a sexual health and HIV physician and a UK MRC Clinical Research Training Fellow based in London, UK, Professor Damien Purcell, Head of the Molecular Virology Laboratory in the Department of Microbiology and Immunology at the Peter Doherty Institute in Melbourne, Australia, and Dr. Meg Doherty, Director of Global HIV, Hepatitis and Sexually Transmitted Infection Programs at the World Health Organization Headquarters. Welcome to you all. And hi, Ming, thank you for joining us today. Could you please tell us a little bit about your own scope of work based in London? Thank you for the introduction and for having me on the podcast, Fabiola. I'm an academic clinician currently undertaking my PhD work working on the REALS trial, which is a clinical trial of long-acting HIV-specific broadly neutralizing antibodies at Imperial College London and the University of Oxford. I'm also a member of the British HIV Association Guidelines Subcommittee and an Editorial Fellow on the Editorial Board of the Journal of Sexually Transmitted Infections. Thank you very much, Ming, and welcome back to our podcast, Damien. Could you please remind us again of your scope of work in Melbourne? Yeah, hi, Fabiola. I'm a virologist and I study HIV and HTLV mRNA biology during the productive and latent phases of HIV infection, particularly for relevant to this conference, and focusing on the steps of HIV RNA co-transcriptional processing to find targets and therapeutics to assist in exposing and eliminating latent HIV. In addition, my group also develops vaccines eliciting potent antibody responses and makes um, broad neutralizing monoclonal antibodies that we engineer for cell-mediated functions. So this conference was very interesting for me. It was great to see you here in Brisbane, Damien. And now to you, Meg. Again, it was lovely to meet you here in Brisbane and welcome back also to our podcast. So uh, your work in Geneva, could you give us a brief summary, please, of your work? Yeah, thank you, Fabiola, for having uh, me back as well. As you mentioned, I'm the director of the Global HIV Hepatitis and SDI programs at the WHO, and we're tasked to bring the best guidelines and the best interventions to be able to scale these up worldwide, particularly in low middle income countries. And since 2020, we've been addressing not only HIV and hepatitis, but the cross-sectional cross commonalities with SDIs. And these are outlined in our 2022 to 2023 global health sector strategies. So we're, we were very excited about the STI work that we learned at this conference as well. Thank you so much. And you can understand that I'm really pleased about WHO uh, being so interested in STIs. So if I could start with the first part of our podcast uh, and the IAS feedback, Ming, it was lovely to meet you in Brisbane. And if we were going to focus on the research presented at IAS, especially clinical management and treatment of HIV, which data did you find most compelling 
I thought the premature closure of the reprieve trial very intriguing. Yes, it was indeed a fully packed conference. We did hear from Dr. Greenspoon and colleagues presenting the eagerly anticipated reprieve study, which was stopped early for efficacy in March 2023, with the benefits outweighing the risk of statin therapy in the study population. In this international phase 3 randomized trial of nearly 7,800 people living with HIV across the globe, the administration of 4 mg of pitavastatin resulted in a 35% reduction of cardiovascular events compared to placebo. This outcome is likely to change treatment guidelines and clinical practice. Then moving on to Dr. Claudia Cortez, who summarized game-changing available and novel long-acting antiretroviral technologies. Long-acting antiretrovirals are reported to be highly efficacious in adolescents and off-label use of cabotegravir and rupivirin injections in people with detectable viral loads demonstrated a 97.5% suppression by six months. We also heard about the efficacy of weekly oral lenacaprovir, bridging therapy, which maintain undetectable viral loads during the clinical hold of the injectable lenacaprovir from the Capella and Calibrate studies. However, a key challenge is the slower rollout of the long-acting cabotegravir and rupivirin injectable antiretroviral therapies in the global south, where it is very much needed, but it has not been approved, and cost remains a barrier. Integrase inhibitors were also much dis discussed. So, although HIV suppression is more likely for people taking dolutegravir compared to efavirenz in the advanced study, integrase inhibitors are associated with higher risk of hypertension and diabetes, as reported in the NEMCEL trial and RESPOND cohorts. Switching to the dual therapy dorevirin and isletravir from integrase inhibitor-based regimens did not reverse weight gain. In previously untreated people living with HIV, dorevirin and isletravir was non-inferior to Bictavi in efficacy, and there were no significant grade 3 or 4 toxicity differences reported in either arms. To round it off, with important data presented for women and children living with HIV, switching to Tenofovir elefanamide, entricitabine, and dolutegravir was virologically superior to other antiretroviral regimes in children, with a favorable safety profile in the CHAPES-4 study. In a large Nigerian study, children switching from protease inhibitors to dolutegravir-based regimen resulted in a 90% um, of them achieving undetectable viral loads post-transition. In an open-labeled study of 33 pregnant women living with HIV, the use of Bictavi showed lower drug concentrations during pregnancy compared to the postpartum period, but all the participants showed that viral suppression was maintained without any dose changes required. And lastly, um, as an addi uh, additional add-on to for HIV prevention, I'd like to briefly mention results from the ANRS Doxy VAC trial, where um, Professor Molina had the opportunity to review his trial in the plenary and in the symposium. Doxypep reduced the incidence rate of chlamydia and syphilis cases from 35.4 to 5.6 per 100 person years. The same study also reported that the meningococcal vaccine 4CMMB reduced the rates of gonorrhea by 53%. Doxypep continues and the MEMB readout will be later in the year. However, in the meantime, ANRS saw an 
audit as the number of new gonorrhea infections are not compatible with the first analysis, and vaccine efficacy. So the jury remains out on the use of MenB and the use of Doxypep beyond the MSM population. Finally, new data showing that Doxypep is likely not to work for females, not because of inherent issues within the drugs, but due to issues around taking antiretroviral therapies in the cohort of women in the trial. <laughs> Fantastic, Ming. I must say, I was holding my breath because you were so succinct. And yes, you did cover the conference really well. Thank you very much, Ming. Damien, what did you find most fascinating in the field of HIV virology? Cure elimination strategies, I think, are right up your street. And uh, we were hearing a lot about BNAPs, broadly neutralizing antibodies. So something to look out for? Yes, there was a lot happening with BNAPs at this meeting. And uh, one of the things that was actually very interesting in a clinical trial setting was something that presented by Ming Li, who's uh, just spoken. So Ming, with his Rio trial, the Rockefeller Imperial an Oxford trial with 72 participants uh, looking at the activity of addition of long-acting BNABs, so LS mutant BNABs, and combining uh, 3BNC117, a potent CD4 binding site inhibitor, and 101074, another uh, quite famous broad neutralizing monoclonal antibody with a different target, looking at the addition of this uh, therapeutic to uh, in, in a trial that still is unfortunately blinded, but already looks like it's providing interesting results after 24 weeks on ART, then removing ART in the presence of these BNABs, looking at an analytical therapeutics interruption, demonstrating that, um, that there was prolonged control in some patients. So it's still blinded, but uh, some interesting patients are coming through. So one patient uh, with 44 weeks uh, of no rebound. So there's going to be interesting data here. It's, uh, it's a big study, an important study, and one that's unfortunately still blinded, but we can already see from what Ming presented that there's going to be some interesting things, potentially replicating one other uh, interesting study in monkeys from uh, Nishimura and the Malcolm Martin group in, at the NIH of a vaccinal effect. So the BNAB's actually stimulating and training immunity. So we'll have to see where that one goes as it moves forward. Other interesting work was looking at um, BNABs and trying to understand how they lose their efficacy. So something that's uh, in the AMP trial and studies from Alessandro Belzaris from the Reagan Institute demonstrating a new way of, of uh, looking at how antivirus uh, escapes against antibody. And it gave some uh, really interesting results that were unexpected in that antibodies that had uh, by the conventional analysis looked like they were going to be good at avoiding uh, virus escape. Under the analysis performed, which was um, to look at the number of potential mutations and the, the genetic difficulty of making those steps, uh, that that demonstrated that antibodies that might not immediately be considered to be capable of controlling virus without escape stood up as very, very good long-term and effective antibodies such as VRCO1. Other studies are uh, looking beyond the activity of just broad neutralizing antibodies uh, and moving into the, the realm of trying to elicit these antibodies was uh, some vaccination studies looking at the ability to stimulate antibody-dependent cellular cytotoxicity or ADCC responses. So stimulating cellular responses 
in addition to the conventional neutralizing antibody effects. So study from Guido Ferrari with an immunization re regimen with LVAC vaccine priming and then with many, many boosts. So actually combining many, many uh, different vaccines, so a long-term uh, alteration and evolution of antibody, but in his setting, stimulating uh, broader uh, antibody-dependent cellular cyt cytotoxicity responses. So his new, new understanding of the vaccination regimen, so multiple uh, and delayed boosts, was capable in his setting of stimulating uh, cellular functions in addition to neutralizing antibodies. And perhaps the most interesting thing with the broad neutralizing antibodies was a study from Paula Cannon from the US, where she was looking at not um, stimulating antibodies, but reprogramming B cells at their B cell receptor. So actually coding the genes of a cell, a B cell, to have neutralizing antibody capability. And what was interesting in her model system was that these antibodies continue to undergo evolution and expand and broaden the neutralizing antibody response beyond what was placed into the, into the cell genetically. So that's a new approach and something that would be uh, quite an interesting development. On the vaccination front, we're all looking for vaccines that are going to stimulate these kind of antibodies. There was a great plenary presentation from Wilton Williams from Duke, who was looking at uh, a single uh, vaccine entity it's targeting something quite different. It's the base of the, of the um, envelope at the GP41. And in particular, looking at the region of the GP41 that is inserting into the, into the lipid bilayer of the envelope of the virus, the so-called MPER region. So he was able to deliver three doses of this vaccine and found that during the course of this regimen, uh, there was evolution of the antibody response, the polyclonal antibodies, that initially didn't bind a little uh, peptide tag, LKDW epitope it's called, but after the elongated regimen was binding to this and uh, this enabled the acquisition of breadth and potency for neutralization, which is um, a new target and uh, a new vista towards potentially combining this with the strong efforts to target the CD4 binding site in a vaccine. So in addition, there are also quite a few studies looking at the activity of BNABs uh, to contribute towards a cure. So combined immunotherapies was a strong theme running through the conference, adding, in fact, BNABs to uh, antiretroviral therapies uh, as a therapeutic vaccination strategy and showing that addition of BNABs towards a cure was having a very strong effect at controlling virus longer term. So Catherine Barr gave a nice study there. Others using other approaches towards combination therapeutics, immunotherapies, Michael uh, Palaiso combining in non-human primate study vaccines. So the adenovirus 26 and MVA vaccines combined with CAR T cells to control and cure and having some reasonable effects with that. Otherwise, uh, other new approaches from Keith Reeves looking at um, post-treatment control and the efficacy of NK cells and finding that uh, subclasses of NK cells in his studies were capable of antigen-specific and memory function. So potentially this population of cells may be accessible by vaccination towards controlling virus. And in the context of cures, the strategies towards uh, the drugs that can 
activate virus or potentially directly kill latently infected cells was an interesting uh, avenue. And we saw from Stephen Eukel from University of California, San Francisco, looking at several different drugs in a, a very large and very uh, deep analysis, genetic analysis, whether these drugs could stimulate and kill directly uh, small molecule therapeutics, these latently infected cells. And he showed that a better clax, a VCL2 inhibitor, was very uh, interesting in its ability to reduce intact HIV in these um, infected cells derived from patients. And finally, we had another cure patient, the Geneva patient, uh, was 20 months undetectable following something that's somewhat familiar, and that's um, a stem cell transplant. But in this case, a transplant with CCR5 wild type cells, so not um, protected by the lack of receptor. And in this case, it seemed that uh, the ability of a, a strategy of um, chimerism that led to graft versus host disease assisted in, in clearing virus. And that patient is now 20 months undetectable from viremia off art. So a lot of interesting things. And as a field, all uh, very excited to get back to regular programming, HIV research after all these years of COVID, working on COVID vaccines and other things. So it was an exciting time, Fabiola. Yeah, it was. And thanks so much for your summary of uh, amazing data on, I think, clearless, colorless uh, fluid, which makes me want to go back to the lab. But yeah, I'm really looking forward to the day when I can prescribe an HIV vaccine alongside hepatitis A, B, virus vaccines, HPV, shingles, varicella, etc., etc. And I think you and I are looking forward to a HTLV vaccine. But now moving on to talking to Meg, Meg, I really am keen to hear about your summary of the WHO's contributions to IS-23, if that's okay with you. Thank you very much. And uh, yes, I think this time around, WHO brought some interesting science and not just summaries or new guidelines to IAS. So I'd like to focus on a few pieces of data that we brought forward. Uh, my colleague, Laura Voinov and the WHO team brought forward a new systematic review in the Lancet, as well as WHO guidance that described the role of HIV viral suppression and undetectable levels of the virus for improving both individual health and halting onward transmission. And I think what was so important here is that for the first time, we were able to really define the levels or the thresholds at which there are approaches to measure virus at which we can say U equals U. For example, for people living with HIV who achieve an undetectable viral load by the method used using their consistent ther antiretroviral therapy, we were able to say they do not transmit HIV to their sexual partners, so therefore are zero risk of transmission. And this was definitely picked up at the meeting with the hashtag say zero. We also showed that the evidence indicates that there is a negligible or almost zero risk of transmitting HIV when a person has a viral load measured at less than or equal to a thousand copies, commonly referred to as a suppressed viral load. So meaning that all people who um, around the world are finding their virus measured at less than 
a thousand copies should be very comforted that they have either zero or negligible risk of sharing the virus or transmitting it to their sexual partners. Secondly, Anna Hoxa and colleagues from the WHO Emergencies Department presented on an analysis of global surveillance of data reported to WHO on the MPOX outbreak. Among 82,000 MPOX cases, we had about 32,000 cases with information on HIV status. And what's interesting is among those, 52% were living with HIV, most being men who have sex with men, and more than 80% of them indicated that sex was the most probable route of getting infected with MPOX. What was more interesting in this analysis is that of those 16,000 people diagnosed with MPOX and living with HIV, around one quarter or 25% had advanced HIV disease or were not immunosuppressed or had a CD4 count less than 200. And this led to an increased risk of hospitalization and death. What we know from this is people living with HIV who were taking their treatment and who had good immunity had similar hospitalization and death outcomes for those who were HIV negative. Again, just rounding out that it's very important that all people living with HIV should have access to testing and treatment. We also had a colleague, Matteo Prochesca, who put forward a dating app survey and had more than 24,000 MSM uh, respond to the dating app survey. And 16, nearly 17,000 of those completing the survey. And noting here, almost 51% had changed their sexual behavior during the MPOX outbreak. Noting that this is really important to note that not only with testing, diagnostics and vaccination, changing of the behavior really probably was one of the key elements to getting the multi-country MPOX outbreak under control. And many of those, up to 33% of those, had ongoing changes maintained more than a year. So lastly, I just want to finish on um, another meeting, which was happening at the same time, the ISTDR or the uh, STI and HIV Congress meeting that was happening in, in Chicago at the very same time as the IAS meeting. And my colleague, Theodora Wee, uh, brought forward quite a bit of important information about sexually transmitted infections at that meeting. In particular, Theo and our colleagues from Cambodia brought forward the information from the early warning indicators uh, surveillance system for drug-resistant gonorrhea or the EGAS system, showing that we are seeing increasing spread of a highly resistant ceftriaxone, a Neisseria gonorrhea that is resistant to uh, ceftriaxone. And this clone has been seen both in Cambodia as well as in China, Japan, Singapore, Vietnam, Australia, Austria, Canada, Denmark, France, etc. So what we have done is that we are in increasing our, our focus on EGASP and surveillance for drug-resistant gonorrhea and also have recommended changes to our current treatment regimens for gonorrhea by increasing um, both the ceftriaxone and the azithromycin parts of the regimen. So please do look forward and go to the WHO websites to understand and get some of that information. Overall, I think post-COVID, we're a little bit worried that there's an increase in STIs 
increase in outbreak in syphilis and congenital syphilis. So all the more that we have our antennae up to be able to better uh, survey and treat and prevent STIs as we move forward. Yes, thank you, Meg, for summarizing the work that WHO has been doing. And also, I thank you for taking the rise of STIs very seriously. Personally, I was also glad to see that IS-23 had accepted an oral presentation on the prevalence of the human T leukemia virus type 1, which like HIV and HPV is an STI as well as an oncovirus. The data were from Kenya presented by Dr. Stephen Gichuhi on the prevalence of HTRV1 and HPV co-infection in women living with HIV. At 7.6%, HTLV was significantly more common in women who lived with HIV and HPV infection, even with good HIV viral control on antiretrovirals. This was not the case in women who did not have HPV infection. Then the HTLV type 1 co-infection was very low at 0.9%. So this study demonstrated again that the prevalence of the STI HTLV1 is very high in Kenya. Meg, would you like to comment on WHO's work against this STI, human T leukemia virus type 1? Thank you very much. And yes, happy to comment on this, Fabiola. And as you know, since 2021, when we put out our very first WHO HTLV1 report and set out a set of actions to address the public health problem of HTLV1, we've committed to working on these 10 uh, steps uh, to be able to address the public health needs. This year in 2023, we will convene around both the testing approaches and the services um, needed to identify people living with HTLV1 and also start to review the appropriate breastfeeding practices to reduce transmission of vertical HTLV1. Sounds like we need to also include looking at HPV vaccination in some of our work as we move forward. Thank you so much, Megan. Thank you for uh, WHO for addressing the reduction of vertical and horizontal transmission of HTLV1. I thank you all, Meg, Damien, and Ming. So today with me were Dr. Ming Lee, sexual health and HIV physician and UK MRC clinical research training fellow based in London, UK, Professor Damien Purcell, head of the Molecular Virology Laboratory in the Department of Microbiology and Immunology at the Peter Doherty Institute at University of Melbourne in Melbourne, Australia, and Dr. Meg Doherty, Director of Global HIV, Hepatitis and Sexually Transmitted Infection Programs at the World Health Organization headquarters. Many thanks also to you, our many interested and faithful listeners, for following us on your preferred listening app and for commenting on Twitter and Facebook to how we are doing. So finally, my special thanks also to our amazing BMJ podcast team, especially the sound editors. And with this, I say goodbye to you. I will promise to be back soon with another STI podcast. And please stay tuned. Until then, goodbye and stay safe. Thank you.